morning. Got your Bibles. Go to the book of John. John chapter 16. John 16, start at verse 1. Let's pray. Father God, in the name of Jesus, God, speak, speak clearly, Father God. Give us understanding of your word, who you are. Let us learn it, love it, and live it in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 16, we're starting at verse 1. There's a discourse Jesus has given to his disciples and his final hours with them. And we're going to pick up, we're going to zone in on verses 7 through 15. We're going to read the whole thing for context. It said, These things have I spoken unto you, that you should not be offended. They shall put you out of the synagogue. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God's service. And these things will they do unto you, because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things have I told you, that when the time shall come, you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I said not unto you at the beginning, because I was with you. But now I go my way to him that sent me, and none of you asketh me, whither goest thou? But because I have said these things unto you, sorrow hath filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is, it is expedient for you that I go. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they believe not on me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and ye see me no more. And of judgment, because the Prince of this world is judged. I have yet many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. How be it when he the spirit of truth is come. He will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself. But whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine, and shall show it unto you. And all things that the Father hath are mine. Therefore said I, that he shall take of mine, and show it unto you. In a little while, and you shall not see me. And again, a little while, you shall see me, because I go to the Father. Now, in this discourse, Jesus is summing up his ministry and preparing them for his crucifixion. He's getting them ready for the time that he's not going to be with them anymore. But in this transitioning from Jesus being with them, he gives them the promise of the Father that the Comforter will come. And he tells us some specific things about what the Holy Spirit will do and will be unto them. And that's what we're going to zone in and focus on. In verse 4, he said, But these things I have told you, that when the time shall come, you may remember that I told you them. And these things I said unto you at, said not unto you at the beginning, because I was with you. So when he's talking and going in this discourse, and he's preparing them for the things that's going to come, one of the things he told them was going to come was a massive persecution. But he said, The people who are going to do you wrong put you out of the synagogues, they're going to kill you, they're going to think they're doing God's service. So he's preparing them for this time where everything's going to flip. But the thing he specified, he said, I did not tell you this at the beginning because I was with you. So there was something about his presence being with them 
that he didn't see fit to have to warn them of the persecution to come because he was there, he was with them. But in this transition, and he says, it is expedient for you, in verse 7, that I go away, for if I, if I go not away, the comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. So he was with them, which gave them some comfort, some protection from the persecution that would come. But now in his preparation for them, he tell them, it is expedient, it's beneficial for you. This is the necessary thing that I go away, because if I go not away, the comforter will not come. And in this transition, these are the verses we're going to focus on. What does he mean by the comforter will not come? And we're going to zone in on this and try to understand this a little bit. But the key point for us is understanding that Jesus is here preaching the Holy Spirit as a comforter. Now, the way we got this word translated in our Bibles is comforter really does not do the fullness of the word justice. Because when we think of comforter, we think of somebody who come alongside of you and give you a hug and make you feel better in rough times. That, that's what we understand comforter to mean. And that's a part of the meaning. The word truly means one who comes alongside as a legal aid, as a help, as a beneficiary to support. That's the comforter, the paraclete. He comes alongside as a legal aid, as a help, as a support. Another way to translate the word would be an advocate. In 1 John, when it talks about Jesus, he said that if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus. This is the same word. Jesus was their comforter. He was their advocate. He was the one that was there with them to plead for them, to go to God on their behalf, in their cause, at being there. And he's saying another comforter is going to come. The Holy Spirit is coming to us as a comforter, as one to help, as one to support, as one to uphold. That's what we have in a comforter. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, when it talks about uh, the wife, this is some the wives. Everybody's talking about the wives. God, the Bible put women down and so on and so forth. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, in Genesis, where it talks about the wife, when God said, I want to make a help suitable for him. That's the same word that is translated here as the name of the comforter. I want to have make a paraclete, one who come alongside, a support, a backbone, an advocate that is meet, that is suitable for him. So the role of the wife is parallel to the role of the Holy Spirit. As one who comes alongside as one who gives support, as one who undergirds, as one who advocates on the behalf of the other. That's what we have in the Holy Spirit. He is our comforter. He is our legal aid. That's why the scripture talks about when we don't know how we should pray the way we're supposed to, the Holy Spirit prays for us. So we got the Spirit of God living in us steadily before the Father on our behalf to plead for us, to advocate for us, to speak up on your behalf in the eyes of the Father, because he is your paraclete. He is your comforter. And he's not just an advocate distant. He's one right there with you. So he understands from your perspective, and he understands from God's perspective, and it's his job to bring the two together. Y'all understand what I'm saying? That's what we mean when we say we have a comforter. We have an advocate. We have a paraclete. So let's say you have something in yourself that you see is not right. And you want God to fix it. 
but you don't feel that you have the right or the ability or know the words to say to go to God to, to, to express yourself correctly. The Holy Spirit is an advocate. So you can commune with him, pour out your heart with him, and him being your advocate, him being your comforter, he has the ability to translate the moanings and groanings of your heart into the appropriate prayer to God. You understand what I'm saying? It's just like a lawyer now. You trying to get some things done. You trying to set up a business. You trying to get a contract together. But you don't know all the stuff that's supposed to be in there. You can go sit down with a legal aid. You say, this is what I'm trying to do. I want to have this type of business. I want this, but I'm worried about this, this, and that. And it's his job hearing you and knowing law to translate your vision, to translate your thoughts onto the paper to set you up legally. Stuff that you can't foresee, stuff that you can't understand, stuff that you can't quite express. He takes your thoughts, he takes your ideas, and he translated them to cover you in the legal world. You understand what I'm saying? This is what we have in the Holy Spirit. He is our advocate. He is our legal aid. He is our help. He is our sucker, one who comes along to comfort us. So you can go to God. God, I want to do this. I want to do that, but I don't know how. And he has the ability to translate, to take the thoughts and expressions of your heart, to take the desires of your heart, and to translate them into Holy Ghost kingdom language so that you can truly express yourself unto the Father. And he has the ability to cover you so that when attacks, accusations, all these things come against you to the Father, he speaks on your behalf. He speaks up for you. He comforts you. He covers you because he is our advocate. He is the paraclete. You, you understand what I'm saying? He's like a divine prepaid legal. Except he good. <laughs> Y'all young folks probably don't know about prepaid legal. That's one of the church schemes they use to get your money. <laughs> that's all I know it. but that's what you have with the father you got a lawyer all the ways with you but he's more than a lawyer he's a counselor you understand what I'm saying so he's a lawyer he's a counselor one who can come and comfort you so when you feeling down when you heavy laden when burdens are too much for you to bear, he can sit there and he can commune with you and share with you the Father's thoughts on what you're going through and bring peace and bring joy and bring satisfaction to your soul because he's a counselor. You can just pour out your heart to him as genuinely, as open as possible, and he will console you where you are, what you're going through, because that's part of being a paraclete, one who comes alongside to help to sucker, to, to, to hold up. That's what you have. So when you need help talking to the Father, you got it. When you need a counselor, a therapist, or whatever you want to call it that you need to go to, you don't have to find nobody. You have somebody there with you, a divine counselor, who can understand you better than anybody on this planet, can understand you. Are you understanding what I'm saying? We speak with therapists. That's, stuff, that's good. They help us. We speak with counselors. They're good. They help us. But they can only understand you to the degree that they can understand themselves, which ain't that good. That's just reality. 
But the divine maker, the one who crafted you, the one who knows all your passions, all your thoughts, all your desires, everything that you ever went through, every way anybody ever hurt you, he is there available to counsel you, to console you, to lift you up, to undergird you in your time of need. This is the comforter that we have. And you see that when Jesus was telling his people and preparing them, he said, now your heart is sorrowful. The stuff that I'm telling you make you feel bad. And then he's transitioning to them to the promise of the comforter. Because in his mind, the things that you are about to go through, the understanding of what is to come, who is to come alongside of you should bring peace and bring ease to what you're about to go through. Now you are sorrowful. <clears throat> now there's some pain. Now there's some hurt. Now there's some, some, some confusion going on to you. But Please understand that there's a comforter to come and it is expedient for you that he comes. You get what you see in the picture. So they go from sorrow. And Jesus brings them to a place of sorrow by telling them all the bad stuff that's going to happen. I'm finna leave. People finna try to kill you. They finna throw you out your neighborhoods and your synagogues. They finna get bad. And I'm telling you this before it happens. But is expedient for you that I go away. So the way Jesus' rationale is coming is this sorrow that you're about to transition into will be helped, will be undergirded because a comforter is coming to you because of it. So we're going to put you into a place where you have access to a comforter that can console you in this time of sorrow, that can strengthen you in this time of weakness, that can be there for you as your aid, as your help to bring you through this time that you are about to go through because our Holy Spirit, the promise of the Father, is a comforter, a paraclete, one who helps, one who aids, one who suckers, one who consoles and advocates on our behalf. Are you understanding what we're saying? This is what we have. Now watch this. He tell you a little bit about this thing in verse 8. And he point out some specific things that the Holy Spirit is going to do to the world. And these verses are somewhat confusing when you just look at them on the surface. It said, when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. So these are three things that the Holy Spirit is going to do. Reprove the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Now, when he said he will reprove the world, this term here, it's hard to really get a good picture of it. Because when we think of reprove, we think of somebody fussing at you, telling you what you did wrong, right? That's that's the picture that we get. Somebody fuss at you and tell you what you did wrong. But the word is a little deeper than that. It has that connotation with it. Like when John the Baptist went after uh, Herod about his illicit, inappropriate marriage, illegitimate marriage. This is the same word that was used. When it said he rebuked him, he brought him to shame. This is the same word that was used when Peter pre preached his sermon on the day of Pentecost. And it said they were pricked to their hearts. They were convicted. This is the same word that was used. And the word is, literally means to bring one under condemnation into shame for. So this is what the Holy Spirit is going to do. To bring under condemnation into shame because of. So he's going to pour out a legal case that convicts you, that condemns you. And make it is what it is to your shame. But it's not just an emotional hurt. 
is lay it all the way out to where you ain't got nothing else you can say. It's to make a full case that brings you under condemnation, that brings you under conviction, that declares this is what the reality is. This is part of the work of the Holy Spirit in the world, that he reproves. Are you understanding what I'm saying? He is a comforter, but as a comforter, he's going to come and he's going to reprove. And this is an unpretty piece of the Holy Spirit and the promise that a lot of people don't like to talk about. That this is the part of the job and the part of the mission of the Holy Spirit. And say so you're going to reprove them of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Reprove them, convict them, convince them of their wrongfulness, bring them to shame because of sin, because of righteousness, and because of judgment. So, Jesus begins to break this stuff down. In verse 9, he said, of sin, because they believe not on me. So, Holy Spirit is going to reprove the world of sin because they believe not on me. Jesus speaking of himself. So the idea is, is that in the Holy Spirit's work, he's going to demonstrate the sinfulness of the world. And he's going to bring the whole entire world under conviction of sin, under condemnation. But the reason he will do so are the, are the final layman of his judgment, his final piece of evidence that brings them all under judgment, brings them under reproof for sin, is the fact that do, they do not believe in Jesus. That's his hallmark case. That's the one thing that he throws out there that condemns them all. Are you understanding what I'm saying? So we let's get the picture in our head to try to get truly get it and understand this. Let Holy Spirit work. People in the world that we live in, we have gotten to a place where morality is relative. And the vast majority of the world has convinced themselves that they are good people. That's the vast majority of the world. You can talk to some of the most wretched, low down folks, and you will never be able to get them to say. I'm bad, I'm evil, I'm wrong. People will tell you, I cheat on my wife, but. I lie all the time, but. People tell you, I steal, but. This is the world that we live in. Because we have this sense of morality that if I am pleased with myself, that's the only thing I have to achieve in life in order for life to be good for me. So I can find a place of self-peace and self-comfort and self-realization of who I am, then I have achieved the pinnacle of human being, and I just got to be me. The beautiful is be you to the full. <laughs> we got a little dumb stuff that say stuff like this. <laughs> and this is what we think of humanity. So when we speak of sin, people don't have a concept of sin. It was one Friday night we was out talking. It's talking to these couple um, people, and they made this statement: "I think you got you think God is pleased with your life." They say, "Yeah, okay. Why you say so? Like we don't, I don't really do nothing bad." Both of them said, "We don't really do nothing bad. We don't do nothing wrong." Like, okay, that's good. Do you lie? Uh, well, not for real. Sometimes, every now and then. Okay. The Bible says if you look upon a woman to lust after her, you have committed adultery in your heart. Do you look at people to lust after them? Yeah, everybody do that. 
I said, the Bible called that adultery. I understand, but I ain't bad. Like, so you do what you're supposed to do. Yes, I do right. You lie and you lust. Yeah, but I don't do nothing wrong. <laughs> and this is a legitimate conversation. And they bent a little bit about lying being wrong, so they don't do that too much. But they still was convinced of themselves that what who they were, what they were doing was okay because they don't do nothing wrong. They lie a little bit and love sometimes. Them the only two I touch. Pretty sure if we dug a little deeper, we find most of that was wrong. But the idea is, is that we have reached to a place where evil, sin, right and wrong is bad, antiquated terms. We need to throw them out. You don't do that type of stuff no more. But a part of the Holy Spirit's role is to convict the world of sin. To convict the world of sin. But its foundational case is that they do not believe on Jesus. And that's the epitome of it. So why would not believing on Jesus convict you or condemns you as a sinner? And this is the picture. Jesus came into this world to take sin from the world. And it was his sole purpose to destroy the works of the devil. The devil brought sin into the world through the deception of Adam and Eve. And Jesus was manifested to destroy them works. And so the culmination, or one of the culminations of Jesus' ministry is the destruction of sin. One, if you do not think that you have sin, or that you are in need of a savior from sin, that is a manifestation of yourself that you do not value the work of Jesus. In your mind, he came in vain because you don't need a savior. And if you don't need a savior, you reject the salvation, the commandment of God, the will of God is that we believe in his son because that is the only hope that we have. And you reject that. And you choose to stand before God on your own merit. And the Bible tells us that the the epitome of our own righteous works is as filthy rags. It's like a menstrual cloth. That's the epitome of what we have. And if you're standing on that, created to be the image of God, created to reflect the nature of God, created to uphold the righteousness of God, you don't meet that. You've been lying since you've been talking. This is human beings. We never have to teach children how to tell lies. This ain't some brothers and sisters have to come along to do. No brother told the other brother or sister that, hey, man, when mama asked you, did you eat your vegetables? Just throw them in the trash real fast and say, yeah. That's not a lesson that goes through a family. But that's a pattern that goes through a family. All the children have done it. You catch little one and two-year-olds doing it. My wife caught my son. He's barely two years old, if I can remember, right? Up, pulled a stool to the sink, got his cup of water, stood up and was pouring it out <laughs> so that he could get some juice. <laughs> now, she would not give him juice until he drank his water. He waited until she left, found the stool, 
craftiness of a two-year-old. <laughs> Pull it up. Get up there carefully. Pour it into the sink. Smart enough not to pour it in the trash, not to pour it on the floor, but pour it into the sink. It was raining to tell his mama he drunk his water. <laughs> because this is within us. This is the nature that we have born in us. And the job of the Holy Spirit is to convict us of this, is to condemn us for this, is to bring us to the place where we're broken because of this. And it's because Jesus is not believed on in the world. So as long as Jesus is not believed on, the Holy Spirit is going to be convicting people, condemning people because of sin. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because Jesus is the only relief. He's the only hope. He's the only remedy for our sinfulness. So the Holy Spirit's amped up his condemnation because we have a remedy. And he seeks to drive us to Jesus. So when you feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit, you need to understand that he convicts you, he condemns you of sin because you don't believe in Jesus. So how do you relieve yourself from that conviction, from that condemnation? Believe in Jesus. Because that's the reason he brings the conviction. That's the reason he brings damnation. That's the reason he speaks against you because of sin is because you don't believe in Jesus. So the key, the remedy to all sin, to overcoming all sin is believing in Jesus. The key to condemnation being removed from you to heaviness and judgment is not that a preacher be nice to you and tell you everything is okay. That's a lie. It's not okay. You have to believe. And if you find yourself in sin, if you find yourself under condemnation, if you find yourself under conviction, don't rationalize and try to make an excuse. Don't get down on yourself and try to figure out another way or don't just give up. Understand that this conviction becomes because you don't believe in Jesus. And you just say, Jesus, help me. I need to believe. Give me faith. Give me whatever it takes for me to trust you concerning this area. You understand what I'm saying? Because that's what the Holy Spirit does. He convicts us. He condemns us. He brings us under condemnation because of sin. But he do it because you don't believe in Jesus. So if you feel that conviction, if you're under that condemnation, if you've got that heaviness on you, the remedy is believing in Jesus. And that's the reason he's bringing it to you. So that you will believe. Are you with me? And it said he's going to, in verse 10, say he's going to reprove them of righteousness because I go to my father and you see me no more. Of righteousness, because I go to my father and you see me no more. So the Holy Spirit is going to bring this conviction. He's going to condemn this world of righteousness, of right standing, of right doing with God. And the crazy thing, he said, because I go to my father. What in the world that got to do with the Holy Spirit? Why are you going to convict me? Because Jesus went to heaven. That don't make no sense. <laughs> Jesus went to heaven, so I'm going to convict you because of righteousness. Like, what type of sense does that make? The one, it shows the pathway of righteousness. Jesus lived the perfect life, did no sin, did no wrong. But not only that, he did all right. He loved people. He was compassionate. He was obedient. This is what he did. And the Father exalted him, accepted him because of it. 
And also in doing that, he made a way for us to the Father. He blazed the path for us to enter into the kingdom of God, to be in the presence of God, what is the reality of true righteousness. You get what I'm saying? Jesus blazed the path of righteousness. He demonstrated it. He showed the Father favor of the righteous, and he blazed, he showed us the way. He has made a more perfect way into us. So when he entered into the presence of the Father, he went before us. He went on our behalf. He went leading us. And the Holy Spirit is here convicting us of righteousness, convicting us of our right standing, our righteous doings that we're supposed to be doing here in this world because Jesus went to the Father. All things have been given unto him in heaven and earth. Therefore, he places his responsibility, his authority upon us and given us the right to do what he did. Because he's at the right hand of the Father, advocating for us. He's at the right hand of the Father, pleading for us. He went there. He made the way straight. And the Holy Spirit, his job is here is to convict us of that. Is to damn us into the place that we see that we ain't what we supposed to be. But we also know and understand that Jesus has blazed the way. We see the clear way. Jesus is the righteousness. He is the right path to the Father. So because he went to the Father, I can go. Because he went on my behalf. Because he lived a righteous life of righteousness and the Father accepted him. If I do the same thing, the Father going to accept me. We can't be like Cain was with Abel. Jesus, I mean, God came to him and said, why are you upset? If you do right, will you not be accepted? He got this jealous mindset. Abel was accepted of the father. I was rejected. So instead of getting bad at himself, he got mad at Abel. And God came down on him. If you do right, will you not be accepted? Because the way of righteousness is pleasing to God. The way of righteousness, God shines on that. And the way of righteousness is the thing that he desires for us to get. But the way of righteousness is because Jesus went to the father. He lived that life. He he blazed that path. And we can follow in his footsteps because of what it is that he has done. And the Holy Spirit is here convicting us of this. The Holy Spirit is here drawing us, bringing, making the case against us of what righteousness is, of what holiness is. And it ain't just the abstaining from wrong. You understand what I'm saying? Because Jesus did more than abstain from wrong things. When you read through the Gospels, you see more talk about what Jesus did than what he didn't do. Ain't no scripture that tell you Jesus did not go to the temple of false gods and worship other idols. That scripture ain't in there. It don't tell you that. But what it does tell you is that he worshiped the Father. That he spent time alone in prayer with the Father. Not his abstaining from idolatry but his participating in true worship. That's what you see demonstrated in the Gospels. At no time do you read Jesus refused to get mad and slap people. That ain't in there. It don't tell you Jesus didn't do that. But what it does tell you is when Jesus looked upon people with compassion, it does tell you that Jesus, he ate with the sinners and he ate with those who were cast out and was downtrodden. It tells you that he took his time to stop and deal with a woman who had an issue of blood when he was on his way to a real job to do something to save her life. 
This shows you the pattern of Jesus' life about what he did do. It don't spend a whole bunch of time telling you what he abstained from doing because that ain't righteousness. Righteousness is the practice of doing what it is that God desires us to do. And the Holy Spirit's job is to convict us of that. This is what he's going to do in the world. To convict the world of sin, convict the world of righteousness, and the last one say convict them of judgment. Now, this is this, this deep. He brings condemnation of judgment. And look at the reason why. He said, because the prince of this world is judged. So because of the prince of this world is judged, he's going to convict the world of judgment. And the beauty in this, if you think about this, how was the prince of this world judged? Anybody know? Go ahead. He was cast down. That's true. But that ain't what John was talking about. The picture that John is talking about, if you pay close attention to it, all these things have to do with who? Jesus. Of sin because they don't believe in me. Of righteousness because I go to the Father. Now he's talking about of judgment said because the prince of this world is judged. So the judgment that he had made reference to has to be in line with everything else that he'd been talking about. And the judgment that the prince of this world was judged was when Jesus himself voluntarily went to the cross and overcame death, hell, and the grave. He condemned all of them by triumphing over them. And he demonstrated two things. One, he showed you the father's hatred for sin and the father's judgment on sin. Isaiah tells us that it pleased the father to crush him. It brought pleasure to Father God to pour out wrath and to crush Jesus. That's something that brought satisfaction in him. Because of the way he feels about sin and the judgment that he's going to pour out on it. So when he stepped up, when Jesus went to the cross, the God of this world was being judged because he was judging sin. He was pouring out his wrath on sin. He was pouring out his condemnation on sin. But the God of this world was also being judged because Jesus triumphed in it. So he not only suffered the judgment of sin, he triumphed over the evil one. It says that the power of sin is death. And Jesus conquered death. You understanding what I'm saying? Death entered into this world because of, of sin. And so that the power that sin has over us is death. That's that separation from the Father. That's that cut off of life that exists because of sin. That's the dread that is produced within all of us when we think about our limited life that we have. That's the, that's, that's the terror that sin has over us. That it condemns us to death. And the judgment of the evil one is to triumph over death because of Jesus. So he convicts the world of judgment because when the world is judged, well, I mean, when the righteous one was judged, it demonstrated the father's belief. It demonstrated the father's conviction. It demonstrated the father's feelings about sin and righteousness and the judgment that he's going to pour out. If he's willing to crush his own son, if he's willing to cause him to be cry out 
if he's willing to cause him to suffer because of sin, how much more will he do to us wretched people whose lives are filled with it? You understand what I'm saying? And Satan thought he had victory. He thought he had triumph because Jesus was at the place where all men supposed to go. That's condemnation, that's judgment because of sin. But three days later, Jesus got up. So the prince of this world was brought unto judgment. Colossians talks about him taking those things that are contrary to us and nailing them to the cross. He brought judgment on them. And the Holy Spirit job is to convict us of judgment, to let us know that judgment is real and that we stand before a righteous God, a holy God who will judge both the quick and the dead, the living and the dead. He will judge all men on this planet, all men on this earth. We all have to stand before him. And the God of this world has been judged. Yes, he was judged by being cast out. That is true. And that's a deep thought if you meditate on it. Because the sin of Satan that got him cast out was thinking that he could be like God. That's deep. The sin that got him cast out was thinking that he can be like God. That's all the scripture tell us. Now all this other fanciful stuff about him starting a war and all that stuff, that stuff comes from other books that we don't believe in. But the sin of him is that he thought he can be like God. Now just think about that for a minute. How many times do you think he thought he can be like God before God knew it? <laughs> That's a serious question. Before God knew that he was thinking like this, how many times you thought think he thought about it? <laughs> huh? Just one time. <laughs> just, just, just one time. Him having the thought, God knew it. And God kicked him out of heaven. How many chances for repentance did he get for that one thought? Zero. Nowhere do you read about God making a salvation plan for the angels. We don't get that story. All we get is them being cast out. We get pictures where it talks about them being held or chained unto judgment. About them waiting on their time. We see the demons crying out to Jesus when he showed on the scene. Like, son of man, please don't torment me before the time. So they know judgment is coming. One time. How many times did you think that you could be like God? <laughs> How many times did you think you knew what was best for your life when God told you something different? How many times did you understand that you weren't supposed to do something because God said so and you did it anyway? This is the same sin. The same rebellion that got him kicked out. And if you think about it, it's worse. Because as far as we can understand, he thought it one time. <laughs> you did it for decades, <laughs> for years. And he was judged for thinking it one time. And we think it's okay we ain't going to be judged. God is nice. 
we just say we sorry and Jesus gonna give us a lollipop and a hug. <laughs> and we think we're worthy to escape judgment. And this is common thought that we have in our culture and our time now. And it, it, it comes from a distortion of Bible teaching. Because the Bible teaches us that we're supposed to forgive everybody, right? We're supposed to forgive everybody. That's true. And the Bible tells us we forgive like we have been forgiven. Then it points out that because any wrong that could be done to us, we done done it to somebody else. That's the reason we have to forgive everybody. So if you do me wrong, I done done somebody else wrong, so I don't got the right to hold you to your wrong and expect them to alleviate me of my wrong. So that's why I have to forgive everybody. Now, how many people had God done wrong? Zero people. So this rule don't apply to him. He's not under the same obligation we are to forgive because he's not under the same condemnation that we are if we do not forgive. Because if I don't forgive, that makes me a hypocrite because I expect it to be forgiven. God don't need forgiveness from nobody. But what has happened is we distorted this thought to thinking that because we're supposed to forgive everybody that obligates me to forgiveness. So God has to forgive me because you're supposed to forgive everybody. And we do not appreciate the mercy of God because we think we're obligated to. You understanding what I'm saying? And this is something you can, you can, you can throw out at people just to have fun. Like, hey, you think you deserve to be forgiven? That's a question you can ask. That's a real, real life question. You can ask that question to people. Just random conversation sometimes. I ain't never done it. I'm going to try it. Now, I have to now. <laughs> I'm telling y'all to do it, so I got to try it. I'm just sitting there asking you about the weather and so on and so forth. Hey, yeah, man, it is. it's been real cold lately, man. It's going to be hot two days from now. Yeah, man, this stuff crazy. You think you deserve to be free? <laughs> <laughs> And I guarantee you, they're going to say yes. Once they confuse and go out of their mind and understand, and they realize it's a legitimate question and a serious conversation, what you talking about? Like, do you think you deserve to be forgiven? Like, do you supposed to be forgiven? And everybody thinks they deserve to be forgiven. Understood. And so the deep question becomes, why do you deserve to be forgiven? And can't nobody answer that question. And the only answer that most people got is, I ain't that bad. I ain't did nothing too wrong because you're supposed to forgive. That's about, that's about the best you're going to get. And there is nothing in God that obligates him to forgive us. He is a righteous God. He is a God who stands as the judge of heaven and earth. That's who he is. And it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict us of this. But understand that the forgiveness of God is a free gift of God, which he does and which he expresses of his own will and out of his love for people, not because of an obligation of some rules. You understand what I'm saying? So when you go to God expecting his forgiveness, understand that you're going to a judge pleading for mercy. Not to some system that has this automatic thing that you're supposed to get. 
like taking an ACT. It, it ain't the same. You just can't go back and, and, and pay your money again and take the whole thing over and they just kick out your last score. It don't matter. You are going to a person begging for mercy from a righteous judge who has an obligation to judge righteously because this is who he is. He is the justice of the universe. And it's his job to make sure justice is put forth in this earth. It is his job to make sure that when it's all said and done, all the scales are weighed and they're balanced because he is the judge. And if any sin goes free, and if any unrighteous person get away, he didn't do his job. So when you come to him for mercy, understand that is what you're coming for. You're coming to a person asking, begging, pleading for him to express mercy to you. Not to a system where he is obligated just to let you go. And it don't count no more because you said the magical prayer at the end of service. Because you raised your hand and repeated after a preacher. Because you sat in two chairs at the front of the church. Or because you got dipped in a pool. None of that stuff obligates God to do anything on your behalf. God is a real person that we relate to. And he is a real judge who's going to really judge this world. And the only hope we got is that Jesus overcame the death and the judgment, defeated Satan on our behalf. And that's what we put our hope in. And I told you, opening up, that the Holy Spirit is what? He's a comfort. He's an advocate. So when he convicts the world of judgment, when he convicts the world of righteousness, when he convicts the world of sin, you got access to your own lawyer. Actually, it's sort of cheating. I don't think this is illegal. Because the one who's making the case against you is also available to be the one who can get you off. Because the comforter is a legal aid. And to convict is a legal act to bring judgment upon. To cast down condemnation. So the Holy Spirit is both the prosecution and the defense. If you let him. That's deep. That deep, you understand what I'm saying? So if he can make a real good case on you because of sin, you can hire that same lawyer to get you off. And you got that same lawyer to get you off. So you have an advocate. So the thing for us is when we feel this convicting, when we feel this condemnation, when we feel this heaviness, when we see the judgment of God being weighed against us, we don't shrink from it. We, we don't make excuses for it. We don't try to alleviate ourselves of guilt. We run to the one, the only one who can comfort us and to get us off. The Holy Spirit of God and what he going to do. Jesus tell you what he going to do. He said he going to take up what's mine and give it unto you. That's deep. And he said he ain't going to speak of himself. He going to glorify me. So the remedy to all these things, the sin, the righteousness, and the judgment is Jesus. And the Holy Spirit living inside of you, his job is to exalt Jesus. So Jesus will be magnified in your life. So believing in Jesus is the way to get you from the, under the condemnation of sin. And the Holy Spirit's job is to elevate Jesus. So producing faith in Jesus is a part of what he's supposed to do. 
is understanding that Jesus has gone to the Father is the way of righteousness and the job of the Holy Spirit is to take what is of the of Jesus and to show it unto you. And Jesus said, all things have been given unto me by my Father and he's going to take of what's mine and show it unto you, to demonstrate it unto you, manifest it unto you. This is what the Holy Spirit is going to do. So he's going to be a comforter for you. He's going to reprove the whole world. And he's going to take of what's Jesus and show it unto you, to demonstrate it unto you, reveal it unto you. So what do Jesus got? He told you. Where, where that? Verse 15. I'm going to read in 14. He said, he shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine and shall shew it unto you. All things that the Father hath are mine. Therefore said I that he shall take of mine and shew it unto you. So what does Jesus got? All things. Everything that the Father got. So let's play this little game. I'm going to throw out something. And y'all going to respond. Tell me what's not the Father got. So give me an amen if, if, if the Father got this. All right. Give me an amen. So, peace. All right, so we, we got that. Now, so if the Father got peace, and he gave it all unto Jesus, and the Holy Spirit of God is to take it from Jesus and to show it or manifest it to us, do we have access unto it? There you go. Easy game. Righteousness. The Father does have righteousness. He is the righteous one. And he gave all righteousness unto who? Jesus. And it's the Holy Spirit's job is to take what is Jesus and to manifest it unto us. So that means the manifestation of righteousness is available unto us because we get everything that Jesus got. And everything that Jesus got is everything that the Father got, which means we get everything that the Father got. So we got peace. We got righteousness. Joy. He got that too. In his presence is the fullness of joy. At his right hands of pleasures forevermore. So we get the fullness of joy. He only got pieces of joy. We get the fullness of it. Because that's what he has. And he took the fullness of joy and gave it to Jesus. The Holy Spirit takes from Jesus and manifests it unto us. So in our life should be a manifestation of the fullness of joy. This is Y'all see how easy this game is? And I guarantee you, there's nothing good that I can name that we don't have access to. Y'all understand what I'm saying? Self-control. Yes, the Father does have self-control. We've been seeing that demonstrated throughout all of history. People have been lying on him. People have been cussing him out. People have been refusing to do what he say. People have been blaspheming his name. They have been tearing up his word, misusing it, all so on and so forth, doing all type of crazy things in his name. And he still is able to maintain mercy and peace and love and all that type of stuff. That's like some major self-control. That's what he got. But since he got self-control, that means Jesus got it too, right? And the Holy Spirit's job is to do what? Take it from Jesus and demonstrate it to us. So that means the same self-control that the Father got, we got access to because the Holy Spirit's job is to manifest 
everything that Jesus got into us. This deep. Now, this, 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 this right here is going to get a little confusing now. Thus, the Father has the ability to be content by himself. Hmm? You don't know? I told you, gonna be, you, you say, yeah? Thus, the Father has the ability to be content by himself. God, that's all I'm saying. Does God have the ability to be content all by himself? No? Y'all confused. I'm going to ask it a different way. What outside of God does God need to make him happy? Nothing. What outside of God does God need to give him joy? Nothing. What outside of God does God need to bring pleasure to him? You need nothing. All the way back in eternity past, who existed? God. All by himself. And we see no expressions of a dissatisfied God. Actually, we see the opposite. God tell you that if I was in need, I wouldn't tell you. <laughs> That if I needed something, I would come to you. I don't need this. And he run out a list of stuff that he don't need from us. So that made me conclude that he don't need nothing from us. He has the ability to be content in and of himself. That's something that he has. That's something that he has because he is a triune being who exists as love and as a community within himself. He needs somebody to talk to, he can talk to himself. And have perfect communion. He needs somebody to love. He can express love within himself. All that type of good stuff. Because of his relationship with himself. That's a little deep and complex. Right? But the same thing still holds true now. Say so We understand it when we say God don't need nothing from us. We understand that. That's basically what you're saying. God has the ability to exist by himself and be content. He's a solitary being. Nothing outside of him is necessary. And that's a part of what he has. And it's the job of the Holy Spirit to take what? What he has and give it unto us. Now this thing get a little more complex. But how can he take the ability to be content in and of himself and give that unto us? We ain't no un triunity like Jesus is, like God is. So how can he do that? Because a part of what he has is relationship with himself. You understanding what I'm saying? Jesus is a part of the Godhead. And a part of what he had is union with God. That's a part of his heritage. That's part of his identity. That's a part of the thing that he has access to. That's what he prayed in the next chapter. We flip over. He said, glorify me with the same glory that I had with you before the beginning. So there's a level of unity. There's a level of sharing. There's a level of oneness that he has in the Godhead that allows him to be peaceful and content and can go off on the backside of a mountain where all the crowds go on doing their own thing and still have satisfaction and joy in themselves. Are you understanding what I'm saying? 
So since that relationship with the Father, that relationship with the Spirit, that union and that communion is something that he has access, the Holy Spirit's job is to take what he has and to manifest it unto us. Which means he has the ability to manifest to you a relationship, a union, a communion with the Holy Spirit of God or with the Godhead that can allow you to be what? Content. That's why Paul can say stuff like, I know how to abase and I know how to abound. That he reached to a place where he said he was self-sufficient is the literal translation of the word that he used there. Like, how can you be self-sufficient? You're just a man. It's because of the relationship and the understanding and the union and the communion with God that he has access to. So he's saying, if I'm rich, I'm good. If I lose everything and poor, I'm still good. If I got a buffet, I'm good. If I ain't got nothing to eat, I'm still good. If I'm in a crowd, I'm good. If I'm by myself, I'm still good. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is what Paul's confession was. So let's think about this thing. If that's part of what the Holy I mean, that's part of what Jesus have access to, this union, this communion with the Father that can allow him to be content. Even though people forsake him and people abandon him and people turn their backs on him, that means I got access to the same thing. That's how David can say, if my father and my mother forsaken me, forsake me, I will be taken up by you. Hmm? Yeah. So basically what he's saying, those who are closest to me, those who are most dear to me, if they forsake me, you will take me up. So David had this confidence that no matter what goes on in the world, he is not alone. That he has comfort, he has peace, and he has access to something that can bring contentment. And we got access to the same thing through our comforter, our advocate, the Holy Spirit of God, because he's going to take of what's God, he's going to take of what's Jesus, and he's going to manifest it to us. So he's going to show me how to be content. He's going to show me how to stand alone. He's going to show me how to be bold. He's going to show me how to be by myself and be happy to be satisfied and to not let people dictate to me my joy, my happiness, and the way that I live and, and, and my ability to be me on this planet. That's deep. But that's something that we have access to. So if we need to know how to navigate with wicked people on this wicked planet and not get sucked into their vortex, you think the Father know how to do that? I think so. I don't think all, all these years he's been around sinners. Ain't nobody made him sin yet. All these years he's been here cussing and we ain't read no place where he cussed yet. So he know how to isolate himself from the influence of the world around him. Jesus lived all them years and can able to stand up in front of his close friends and his family and say, any can one of y'all convict me of any wrongdoing? That's deep. So he was able to live in this world, to be in the midst of sinners, to be in the midst of his family who was messed up, doing their own thing, and he could still stand and hold up a standard of righteousness and not allow them to drag him into what they got going on. He can say, 
and one, can and one of y'all say I did anything wrong? And I believe that's how he said it too. They probably don't understand him. That's why he announced because he, he he fast forwarded to the history and got a country Southern Alabama accent and said, "Can and one of y'all tell me anything I did wrong?" <laughs> And they couldn't say nothing. They ain't know what he was talking about. <laughs> but y'all understanding what I'm saying? Because these are some things that we struggle with. And the hard thing for us is to try to understand how God can have anything to do with that. Or how, how he can understand what I'm going through in this time, in this picture, in this situation. So we don't see Jesus as a remedy for this. Because this is something peculiar to me. This is something peculiar to my context. This is something that only me on the planet is going through. There ain't nobody else on this planet been born in a family full of people who get drunk all the time. That's what we think. There ain't nobody else got friends who, who think they one thing but really another thing. And they only want me to be like them and they can't accept me unless I'm like them. We think ain't nobody else on the planet got that. I'm the only people that person that work with evil coworkers who all they want to do is fuss and cuss all the time and do and pick at you and make you mad and say little crazy stuff. So I don't know where to go to. I can't get no help with this because can't nobody relate to this. And God showing sure up can't help because He God. That's how we think. And I'm here to tell you that's a lie. Jesus lived in the world just like you live in the world. And not only did he live in a world with people who didn't live like he lived, he lived in a world with people who didn't like he lived like he lived wanted to kill him. At least all they're going to do is call you lame. <laughs> Ignore your text. But Jesus stood up and said stuff about God. They can pick him up and throw him, <laughs> throw him off a cliff. I don't think now one of us ever experienced that. But yet it's still... He can find satisfaction. He can find contentment. He can navigate in that life and maintain his righteousness, not compromise, not lower his standards, not become a part of them. He can say that the evil one's coming, but he has nothing in me. That's deep. So is it possible for you to show up at the Easter Day cookout with your family, with them drunk and singing the blues, and you still be a Christian. It's possible. Is it possible for you to do this every holiday and not have it just suck the life out of you? And you just get down. Next thing you know, you drink. It's possible. Is it possible for you to go to school, go to work, and be around all them heathens, to be around all that foolishness, and not get sucked into that life. It's possible. Is it possible for you to suffer loss of friends? Possible for you to be ostracized and put down by coworkers, by by peers, by family, by whatever, and still maintain and have peace and have joy and have a loving relationship with those people? It's possible. Do you know how to do it? No. But Jesus did it. And that's something that he got. And the Holy Spirit's supposed to live in you. And he's going to take everything that's Jesus and do what with it? Give it to you. Manifest it to you. So the Holy Spirit going to manifest to you how to live with crazy people and not be crazy. How to relate to evil people and not become evil. 
of how to love people who hate you, despise you, and turn their back on you in your time of weakness, in your time of trouble, and you still have strength and have joy to express love to those people. Do the Father got love? Yeah, he do. That means Jesus got it. And that means the Holy Spirit can take it and manifest it to you. Are y'all understanding what I'm saying? So we have access to a comforter, one who can come alongside us to help us, to advocate for us, to support us in our time of weakness, in our times of trouble, in our time of sorrows. But he ain't going to just be doing that. He's going to convict. He's going to reprove not only us, but this world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. But not only that, he's going to glorify Jesus in the midst of us because he's going to speak about Jesus. He's going to lift him up. And the way he's going to do that is he's going to take everything that Jesus has, which is everything that the Father has, and he's going to manifest it to us. So as we contemplate and as we learn about God and we see attributes of God, we see things that God can do, we see stuff that, that that's power and authority that Jesus has, we need to start retraining our brain and we need to say that, hmm, that means that mine too. Because the Holy Spirit's job is to take it and to manifest it unto me. And that's the way he's going to glorify Jesus. And he got to glorify Jesus because he's the Holy Spirit. And that's what the Father told him to do. And they obey one another. So he got to glorify Jesus. And by glorifying Jesus, he's going to give you what's Jesus and manifest it unto you. Which means he got to give you the stuff that belongs to Jesus, which is everything that belongs to the Father. Which means you got access to everything that God got access. So that's why the apostles can say stuff like every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and come down to the Father of life. Ain't no variance or shadow or turning within him. That if you lack wisdom, let a man ask of God who gives freely and does not upbraid it. He has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. How did he give us? Through Christ Jesus our Lord. How did Jesus give us? Through the Holy Spirit shedding it abroad in our hearts, manifesting it unto us. Are y'all with me? And the last thing, we're going to leave with this. Now, we talked about the Holy Spirit being a comforter, reproving, and glorifying Jesus. He's, that's his job to do all that. And he lives and activates and moves through this world through what? Us, his people. Holy Spirit moves, lives, and activates through us, his people. So, not only is he a comforter for me, but because he in me, he can manifest comfort through me. You get what I'm saying? Because that's the way he moves, that's the way he lives, and that's the way he operates. So it's possible for Dominique to be a comfort. Because she has the comforter living inside of her. So she can be that. She can deal with people's heaviness and brokenness and not be overcome, but can, can succor them and, and point them in the right direction and lead them and guide them into all truth because the Holy Spirit that comforts her is inside of her to comfort others. That's why Paul said it made a state that we comfort one another with the comfort where we have been comforted. We've been comforted with the comfort of God and we can comfort one another with that same comfort. So Cabronica can be a therapist and a counselor. Not because she went to school and read a whole bunch of books from a whole bunch of dead men who don't know them by God, but because she got God living inside of her, which is the spirit of the comfort. That's deep. But it also goes to the next stage. That Miss Ebony can reprove the world of sin. 
She can convict them. She can bring judgment and condemnation on this world of sin because they don't believe in Jesus. Because the one who brings judgment and condemnation to the world because they don't believe in Jesus lives inside of her. And he's supposed to speak and express himself through her. So when she speaks and express herself and she condemning people because of sin, she got the right and the authority to do so if they don't believe in Jesus. That's part of the work of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit works through us. And we magnify God in the way that we live. But whose job it is to glorify Jesus? The Holy Spirit. Which means the Holy Spirit's job is to work through me. Say, don't hide your light, but let your light so shine that men may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. But glory comes from the Holy Spirit to the Father and the Holy Spirit is inside of us. So you can reprove the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Matter of fact, you should reprove the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment because you are advocate. Because the advocate lives in you and you are conduit of the Holy Spirit. He talked about Jesus' statement. He said, out of the bellies of those who believe in him shall flow rivers of living water. And this he spake, speaking of the Holy Spirit. So the living water flow out of you. And part of the job of the living water is to convict the world of sin. So you should be convicting this world of cause of sin. That's deep. So if a person don't believe in Jesus, and you expressing the Holy Spirit, manifesting your gift, your gift should bring some conviction sometimes. And don't be scared to do it. And don't let the world tell you you can't judge. Yes, you can. Because that's what the Holy Spirit's job is. And the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. So judge. Just be right about it. Are you with me? This is all a part of the goodness that we have in the promise of the Father. We get a comforter. We get an advocate. And we get access to all that Jesus has, which is all that the Father has. But we got to believe and retrain our minds to know that this is true. Anybody got any questions? Uh, you mentioned about, you know, Satan being the God of this world. What, what, what does the Bible mean by calling Satan the God of this world? Uh, the literal definition of God is a great one, our ruler. That's the literal definition of what the word means. So when they refer to him as the God of this world, it's just saying he's the ruler of this world. In the world, not as in the sense of the globe and all that exists, but the system. That's uh, First John talks about John, the one that speaks of this most often. Paul, a little bit when he talks about the world, he said, "All that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life." So, in John's system, that's what he means sometimes when he's referring to the world. You got to let context demonstrate it to you. So, the system of itself, Satan is the ruler of the system. So all the pride of the life, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, this is all controlled by him. This is an orchestration of his will being expressed on the planet. Uh, when you were talking about forgiving and us, you know, forgiving because we have to be forgiven, um, I thought about the parable the parable that the that talks about the man who owed well, people owed okay. him and then he held him to it and then his master came and was like, give me mine. And yeah. I think he, he, he found out that he was not forgiving of the other people. But so I couldn't find it. Is that is that a parable about forgiveness, period? I always thought it was related to money for some reason. No, but, it, it's a parable about forgiveness, period. Because I can't think of where it is now. Where the parable goes is the man is pleading with the master first. 
because he owed way much more than he could ever pay. And the guy give him forgiveness. So he leaves from the hall and finds somebody who owes him just a little bit of money. And he makes the police grab the man and put him in the debtor's jail. And so that uh, the master or the ruler finds out about it and calls him back in. Like, well, since you can't forgive debts that owe to you, I ain't going to forgive what's been, what you owe. And so he was thrown into prison and could not repay. And so the parable parallels Jesus' statement in what we call the Lord's Prayer. Let us forgive those who forgiven us, even as we have been forgiven. So that that's what he's trying to teach in that our forgiveness is relational to our ability to forgive. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. How can you um, use the suffering that you experience to a blessing to comfort someone else? Multiple ways. And it's not just the suffering that you experience. But it's when you allow God to comfort you or heal you or strengthen you in the midst of it. And that's the thing that brings comfort. The suffering itself only allows you to connect with the other person. Because there are some people on this planet who is going through some of the very things that you have gone through or some things that are similar. That's what Paul said. No temptation has taken us except that which is common to man. So <clears throat> you have the ability to capture the attention of a person that nobody else can. Because we all, once we suffer, think that this is only me and I'm the only person who felt like this. I'm the only person who had to endure this and nobody else understands. So when you can express your story and tell them, this is what I went through and this is what I suffered and this is how life beat me down, that captures their attention. But the comfort comes in your ability to relate to them how God comforted you or how when you thought it was over with, this happened. So the, the transition is what brings the comfort. You understand what I'm saying? So the suffering itself only brings the connection that, that, that allows you to connect with people that can't nobody else connect to because they think they're the only ones that went through this. They think they're the only ones that feel this hurt. But when you can share to them the hurt that they feel is hurt that I felt, that pulls their attention in. And in your ability to express hope your ability to express, express strength or overcoming of it, that's what brings comfort to them. And you can teach them and demonstrate to them that this is how God can relate to you. This is how he can help you in this situation. Oh, this is what he did to me. And so it gives hope to somebody else. You understand what I'm saying? Because most people in real bad, real tough situations don't have hope. Or they didn't have so hope so long that it had been dashed through the stone that they don't see a way out. They give up. So if you can say, yeah, I've been there, and this is how God delivered me, or this is what's going on with me now, I understand that gives them hope, and that's how you comfort. But it takes you first allowing God to truly heal you within, and it takes you allowing God to let you be vulnerable enough and give you the wisdom when to share it. Because all times ain't the time to share it, because everybody don't need to know. But there are some times where some people where you have to, and it's their deliverance to hear you just express whatever it is that you've gone through, whatever hurt that you have. They need that. Just to say, I'm here with you. I understand. You get you get what I'm saying? It makes sense to you. Who is the prince of the world? That's Satan. 
Who is the? Who are the quick? The quick, quick. That's an old word that means living. What do angels do? What do they do? They work for God and work for us. How do they work for us? The Bible talks about that He gives His angels charge, so uh, us charge over them. So at least we dash our foot to the stone. So they're here protecting us, covering us. They fight against evil forces on our behalf and anything else God tells them to do for us. Is it good to bring people to shame? Is it good to bring people to shame? It depends on your purpose for doing so. You bring them to shame, not so much to shame or to embarrass them, but to bring them to the place where they realize they're wrong and need their need for a change. So we, we think shame like, I put you out there, I made you look bad. But shame in that biblical sense is the point where you see yourself and you understand that I'm messed up and, and it's bad. What does content mean? Content means you don't have need that drives you or that causes anxiety or angst inside of you. You're at peace with what you are, with what you have. I don't understand how we can we can't be like Jesus when we got access to everything he has. That means we can be like him and we're supposed to be like him. And it's our job to draw closer to him every day and pray that he make us like him. So, yes, you're supposed to be like him. That's why he gives you access to everything that he has. Um, verse 9 says, I'm sin because they believe not only. And um, I've had many conversations, and I've been talking to you, have had many conversations where people um separate the two. Like they'll, you know, say they don't care about sin, or not that they don't care, but that sin is not that bad or whatever, as long as you believe on Jesus. Or like they'll say they have a lot of sin, but they believe on Jesus. And they think, you know, that's all it takes is believing on Jesus. So what would you say to some? What do you say to people who have that argument to show them that those two are directly related? Oh, that the sin and believing on Jesus. Uh, generally, when I go people down that road, it's clear to define terms because we live in a world where everybody uses church language, but don't nobody know what it means. So when you ask them, yeah, I believe on Jesus. So sin, like, so what do you believe about Jesus? And most people will tell you that he died for our sins. Then you have to ask, so what does that mean? And that's when they get stuck. Because they never thought about that question. So when you ask them, what does Jesus' death do for our sins? Most people can't answer that question. Because they think that means he, we just say this magical prayer and we get to go to heaven. So you have to go and take them through the scriptures that demonstrates to us that because we believe in Jesus, we have eternal life. That because we believe in Jesus, all the old stuff is passed away. Behold, all things become new. We're a brand new creation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So what does it mean to be a new creation? So can he make you new old? Like is Jesus into retrofitting? <laughs> These are the type of conversations you have to have, but one thing is to define what they mean by when they say they believe in Jesus. 
And you have to help them understand that believing and not just thinking that it's a God up there. The Bible tells us the devils do that and do tremble. But believing is in trusting somebody and, and relying on them. And when you're relying on Jesus, what are you relying on him for? And you can only rely on him for what he promised to do. Like I said, and we got this easy scripture that those who are in Christ Jesus are brand new creations. Behold, the old stuff is past. All things have become new. So if all the old stuff is past, how can you still be the same sinner you was now after that you was before? You shouldn't be because everything is supposed to be brand new. Like I said, unless they believe that Jesus retrofit. That he, he makes stuff look old. That's new. I don't think he do that because the old is wrong. So those are the type of things that you point out that the power of the Holy Spirit in us, that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. What is the work of the devil? Sin. And these are the type of conversations that you have to show them that part of Jesus' job, a part of his obligations was to get rid of sin. That behold, he's the Lamb of God that comes to take away the sins of the world. So if he took away my sins while I still got them. You, you, you understand what I'm saying? Yes, but that is a plague that we have in our world that people think that just because Jesus died, we get exempt. And that does not make sense because the prince of this world was judged. And judgment is real. And so exemption and righteousness can't exist at the same time. There has to be a standard. And 2 Thessalonians 2. Mm-hmm. He says, says, for the mystery of iniquity does already work. Well, of course, it's like stuff before this world. But what is the mystery? The mystery of iniquity? That's a reference to to the mystery of, of, of sin. And it's a slant reference to the spirit of the Antichrist. And John makes a similar statement. He talks about the Antichrist coming. And he said, yea, there are many Antichrists already gone out into the world. So when he's talking about here the mystery of iniquity, and other places refer to as the son of perdition. So it's this idea of, of there's this mysterious one who embodies sin. And he's coming on the scene. But not only is he coming, this spirit, this one that embodies sin, is already at work into the world. So, the mystery of iniquity is a person for people? It is. It will be a person, but it's the spirit of a person that will be expressed. It's like John talked about, the Antichrist is coming. But the Antichrist, we believe to be a person coming on the scene. But he say. But the spirit of the Antichrist is already in the world. So there's a spirit that will possess the one that we refer to as the Antichrist that makes him who he is. And that is the embodiment of sin. So that spirit, that nature is already at work in the world. So the mystery of, of, of iniquity is, is this power of sin, the spirit of wickedness that is in the world that moves, that works that will be embodied by a person at one point in time. Just like the Bible refers to the spirit of righteousness. But we know Christ is our righteousness. So righteousness is embodied in Christ, but it's a spirit that has been disseminated throughout the world, throughout his people. 
So there's a spirit that has been disseminated throughout the world, a spirit of wickedness, a spirit of perdition, a spirit of antichrist that will be embodied in a person at one point in time. Make sense to you? A little bit? Okay. Wondering why is it called a mystery though? Like is a secret about who it is or something? The reason when when Paul generally uses the word mystery, what he generally refers to is something that was hinted at in the old but not fully expounded on. Just like he refers to the mystery of godliness. And when he talks about the mystery of godliness, what he's talking about is God coming and dwelling his people and expressing himself through them. These are things that the Old Testament hint towards. But now with the revelation of Christ and the outpouring of the spirit, we get a full understanding of how this is supposed to work and how it's going to take place. So he refers to it as the mystery of it, as in the sense of something that was hidden, something that has been unveiled. And that's what when he refers to the mystery of iniquity, this this is a spirit that's been at work, that is at work, that's been hinted towards, that's going to be completely unveiled at some point in some time. Second no, Second Thessalonians? Yes. Chapter yes. 2, verse 8? Yes. The which or that which is, is that a thing? Is we be, I believe that it's a reference to that one that is to come. So that same one, that son of perdition, is that, that antichrist that John was talking about, he's that wicked. So it's that wicked one, or that that that, that embodiment of, of evil when he's revealed. That's why I go on say, even him, uh, even that which is after the workings of Satan. So this wicked one is going to be characterized or, or embodied by the working of Satan. Go ahead. Well, it is, it's two different people and things that we're talking about. What do you mean? I mean, like, I usually think of the wicked one being Satan, but then way it reads is like it's different there's the wicked one and then there's Satan. In this context when he's talking about the wicked one he's making reference to what we would generally refer to as the Antichrist, the son of perdition, the abomination of desolation all those different phrases referring to the same one that's going to come in the end of the age and he's saying this one, this wicked one, this one whom the mystery of iniquity will manifest itself through He's going to be after the working of Satan. So just like God came down in the flesh as man, Satan going to manifest himself through a man, and all his workings, all his power is going to be manifested through one dude who we refer to as Antichrist, the son of perdition, the abomination of desolation, and all that other stuff. So this is his spirit. The spirit of the wicked one is in the world. As that generally refers to Satan. But there's going to be one wicked who is embodied by Satan. That's how he get the designation of being the wicked one. 
It's like Judas took that title for a short period of time. He was the son of perdition. And why to say he was the son of perdition? Says that Satan entered into him and caused him to do what he did. So Jesus referred to him as the son of perdition. So this title is one that who, who only embodied the work and the power of Satan. Any other questions? That's it. They're all yours.